Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 73, The International Space Station Begins, Part 2. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know the coolest information about what's going on right here at NASA. So today is another very special episode because we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of the beginning of the International Space Station, the ISS. A critical mission in this story is STS-88. It's the shuttle mission that brought the Unity module to join the first element, Zarya, in space. It was the first ISS assembly mission for the space shuttle, the first time ISS elements joined together, and the first spacewalks for ISS assembly and maintenance. STS-88 launched on December 4th and returned December 15th, 1998. So to tell this story, we're bringing in Jerry Ross. He's a former astronaut and uh, flew with Mr. Cabana, uh, Mr. Bob Cabana, the commander and currently the director of the Kennedy Space Center on STS-88. Ross went out with astronaut Jim Newman uh, back uh, during the mission for the first three spacewalks of ISS assembly and maintenance. To give you some idea of how cool that is, we're over 200 now for ISS assembly and maintenance spacewalks at the time of this recording. So with no further delay, let's jump right ahead to our talk with Mr. Jerry Ross for the 20th anniversary of the International Space Station and the milestone mission STS-88. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit by circuit red. Here she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Jerry, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate you actually taking the time to come on here. I'm glad to be with you. So today we're going to be talking about a milestone mission, uh, STS-88. This was a lot of firsts. This was um, the first time that w the first ISS assembly mission, the first uh, ISS or International Space Station spacewalk to actually um, uh, do assembly and maintenance. Uh, very important milestone in the beginning of the International Space Station program. So I kind of wanted to start by just sort of setting the scene. This is late 1998 that we're talking about. What is, what's going on at NASA? Where are we coming from? What's going on right now? What's going on in 1998? Okay, uh, well for me personally, I'd been on one of the Mir missions, STS-74, where mm -hmm. we'd gone up and visited the Mir station and we actually added the docking module to the Mir station that all the subsequent space shuttle visits there used to uh, dock to the, the Mir station. Uh, after that was done, I went into a fairly lengthy period of leading the spacewalking team to try to figure out how we were going to build the space station from a spacewalking standpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, we built a large cadre of uh, crew members and engineers and, and flight controllers. Uh, we went through and evaluated every piece of hardware to make sure that we could physically do what we were supposed to do or what the engineers needed us to do to do the assembly and maintenance activities on that. Uh, we found many things that were not adequately uh, designed and sent those back to the program and said we can't do that and uh, we worked hand in hand with them to figure out ways to fix things and to get things ready for us to uh, 
be able to uh, confidently build the station and maintain it. So this was coming from experiences on Mir too, right? Because that was also a collaborative endeavor. You even said you were talking about the docking module that fit the U.S. shuttle to the Mir, right? Right. We didn't do any spacewalking on Mir uh, except for one or two times. Okay. And that really didn't feed into to this effort. But certainly what we did learn on Mir about longer-term stays in space and the logistics of it and how to do the care and feeding for the crew members that were up there for long periods of time, mm -hmm. that's all certainly folded into our, our thought processes and our planning and our execution of station once we started staffing it. Okay. So then how, how did you even start with um, if learning to spacewalk and, and knowing what you were going to do to actually assemble the International Space Station. Okay, well, I had uh, done five spacewalks already by that. Uh, I'm sorry, four spacewalks by that time already. There you go. And um, after the, uh, the Challenger accident, um, I started to uh, campaign to start doing some more spacewalks, planned spacewalks, because we had this this a wall of EVA that people were starting to talk about where we'd done almost no spacewalks at all in the shuttle program to date and now we were talking about the entire assembly and survival of the International Space Station was going to be based upon having to do literally hundreds of spacewalks. Wow. Uh, so we started to uh, do some uh, relatively simplistic spacewalks on some of the shuttle missions to gain experience on doing that uh, because we'd lost a lot of the experienced uh, people after the Challenger accident, mm -hmm. uh, engineers, con flight controllers, and, and crew members. So we started doing that to build up our cadres of experience. And also we started to develop some hardware that we could evaluate on orbit to see if it was going to be the kinds of equipment we thought we were going to need to do the assembly activities. Mm -hmm. And then uh, probably one of the biggest things that I'd been campaigning for ever since my first flight was a new water tank. We had the uh, wet, WETF here, the Weightless Environment Training Facility, which was very small. It was only uh, 25 feet deep and about uh, uh, 30 feet across and about 70 feet long. Basically, you could not put the incomplete uh, payload bay mock-up of the space shuttle in there and have the payload bay doors open and everything else. Hmm. And we were going to need something that was incredibly larger than that. So for about 10 years, I would go to Washington every uh, month or uh, every about twice a year to uh, give presentations to see if we could get funding for this new facility. Which we now call the Neutral Buoyancy Lab? Which we now call the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, about the Sunny Carter Training Facility. Yeah. Wow. So we got that in place, and I ended up being the, uh, the lead of the team that certified it for, for configuration and use. And uh, then we started doing the evaluations of the station hardware, piece by piece in there, where we had um, three different uh, crews of two people each that would do the evaluations, and we would record all of their uh, comments on each and every specific task that they evaluated. Mm -hmm. And once all three of the teams had evaluated each piece of hardware, then we would have a sit-down session where we would come to a consensus on what was acceptable as is, what was uh, causing us problems, but we could fix it or by working around it or maybe some minor tweaks. And then every once in a while, we would identify some task, some item that was not capable of being done in its current configuration. Hmm. And we would take those all back to the, uh, the station program office and discuss them and come up with a satisfied solution, satisfactory solution. And uh, then once that uh, solution had been implemented in the uh, 
the, hard, the training hardware, we will go back in and evaluate it again to make sure it was all acceptable. Yeah. And so we did that for every piece of hardware that was going to fly on the station, uh, every task, every uh, black box that we were going to change out and everything else. And we tried to select our crew members that were doing these evaluations so that we had a wide uh, distribution of, of capabilities, of experience, and also body sizes and types. Because we never knew who many years downstream was going to be doing that assembly uh, flight or was going to be charged with doing that maintenance activity. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to have any of the tasks that could be a, performed by anybody that might eventually get assigned to do it. Wow. So that's, uh, that's an incredibly important job then. Once uh, something is designed, to actually test it out and figure out if it's going to work, I mean, you're finding out things are not working in this lab and it's the place where you, you want to find it out on the ground it. and get fixed before you go launch into space and find out that it's not going to work wow likewise we did a lot of uh we fought for and got a lot of uh, fit checking of hardware before we launched it into space yeah and many times we would again find where the bolt was not properly manufactured and our wrench wouldn't fit onto it hmm. or the cable was too short or the connector was a mismatch it wouldn't fit onto the mating uh, connector that it was going to to go onto. So uh, there was a lot of, you know, I've always likened it to you see a, a duck or a swan gliding across a pond or something, and it looks like they're just gliding with no effort at all. <laughs> but if you see their paddle, their feet paddling underneath <laughs> the water, they're really working hard. And, and that's basically what we were doing for those several years leading up to the actual start of the assembly of the station. Yeah, a lot of important work going on. Now, yeah, I want to go back to the, the uh, making sure that the suits and, and all the equipment is going to be fit. Is that is that what you're talking about? You're talking about the suits themselves are going to fit different bodies and the tools that they're using are going to be able to be used? Is that all part well, of it? Well, the suits was another issue. Okay. We're, we're okay. primarily more worried about uh, the, the tools, the wrenches, the things we were going to be using. Did they fit the proper interfaces? Okay. And we didn't only fit check the tool that we planned to use, but all of the other possible tools mm-hmm. that we could use as a backup if we lost the primary tool or broke or something like that. Um, and we also um, wanted to make sure that all of the equipment fit together properly. We would mock up the hardware and stretch out the flight cable between the two places mm-hmm. to make sure that the routing we were going to use, uh, it was of adequate length and it was uh, uh, not going to be too stiff when you're in, zero gr- in uh, cold temperatures of outer space yeah. so that you could properly bend it and align it to connect it up. So there's a lot of things going into it, and that's probably one of the things that I and the rest of us that did that work were most pleased in, is that we basically had no hiccups in all of the on-orbit assembly and maintenance activities. We'd, we'd resolved all those issues pretty much, and, and it was uh, only the real surprises <laughs> that we could not have thought of that uh, caused us some some problems on orbit. Yeah, that's incredibly important. Was there now? This was an international space station that you were working on. Was there components of what was learned on Mir? I know I, they did do a couple spacewalks. So did you learn from them uh, from that aspect, from their spacewalking experience, and, and even mishaps like the collision? Yeah. Well, we we studied what they did. We looked at it. We understood okay. their hardware. We had people that went over and uh, did dives in their water tank and in their oh. spacesuit. And we understood their tools, and we communicated back and forth. Uh, I had sit-down sessions with their spacesuit designers. Uh, I got to go over there one time and and to get into their spacesuits and to also do a test flying of their uh, 
they called it their space bicycle. It was our version. Uh, our version would have been the MMU, the man maneuvering unit. Hmm. So it was a you know a backpack, a rocket powered backpack kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I got to experience that as well. So uh, there were some good exchanges I thought going on during those years, and I thought those were beneficial to everybody. Yeah, definitely. Now leading up to the mission, your your this particular mission, STS-88. This is the assembly, the first assembly mission of the space station. You've been preparing for this that because, you, like you said, you're practicing all the spacewalking techniques, maneuvers, hardware, to make sure that in orbit, this mission, that it's actually going to work. So tell me about the, the first day, you know, getting ready for launch. Well, we did that a couple times. Yep. <laughs> Had to scrub the first time, right? Yeah, we got to scrub the first time. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the there was a switch uh, that didn't act like it should have, and mm-hmm. uh, it caused a uh, a bobble and a hydraulic uh, pressure on one of the systems, and and the and the guys on the ground wanted more time to make sure that they understood what had happened and why it had happened. Yeah. So we we scrubbed the first opportunity, and we came back the second day, and and they were able to get off the ground. Uh, it, it was uh, my sixth launch, so it was nothing real surprising. Right. But, but it was always an exciting event. Uh, <laughs> thrilling event uh somewhat scary in some ways because there's a whole lot of things that all had to work right and, yes uh, you just really uh you were confident that everybody had done their job right but you didn't know if if everything was going to go as planned <laughs> now how about uh actually rendezvousing with zarya this is the first element of the space station it was up there and your job was to connect it to the american module the uh unity node right, right. um so that coming into sight um was that kind of a important milestone for you or i guess you had you had seen other things in space how was that for you well it was it was an exciting uh, event as we uh, approached it and if we could finally see it visually yeah i have to tell you the whole crew uh, met at bob cabana's home here uh, in a clear lake area uh the night that zaria launched into space hmm. and we watched that on live tv fairly late in the evening here and we were excited because when we knew they had got safely onto orbit, that our mission was going to proceed about two weeks after that. So yeah. we were excited about that. But <laughs> once we got onto orbit, of course, uh, the first thing we did was to pick up the Node 1 with the two pressurized mating adapters on it, which we'd carried up in the payload bay. Mm-hmm. And we picked it up and put it onto the top of the docking port out in the, our payload bay. Right. And then we proceeded to proceed on to, uh, to the rendezvous with Zarya. That's right. And as we got closer and closer then, um, it was an interesting task because we had to fly it down into the payload bay, but we couldn't actually see it anymore (laughs) because with the Node 1 sticking up out of the payload bay on a docking module uh, right there, right behind the windows, uh, we couldn't see Zarya once it got close enough into us. And so we had to use TV cameras to totally follow that. And, of course, we had enough TV cameras properly positioned uh, to help us with that task. But, again, it was kind of a, an eerie feeling. They know there's this other piece of structure out there that wasn't very far away. Right. And we couldn't really see it except through the TV cameras. Wow. Yeah, that. And then also there was the component of actually fitting them together. It wasn't just a nice little, you know, pull it in and touch it. You actually had a boost into it, right? Right. Well, we did the same thing. We put the node uh, one onto the docking port. Oh, did. We did a firing yeah. of the thrusters, which made sure that the capture latches were seated properly okay. and we could pull everything together and secure it. Uh, so uh, as we got closer and closer to Zarya, then uh, Nancy Curry had the robotic arm up and mm-hmm. there's a, a camera on the end of the end effector there that was looking out. And we could, that gave us a relative distance 
that Zari had come down into the payload bay or towards the payload bay. Okay. So that was one way that we could kind of get that, that dimension. And so once we got there, she then would finally move the arm over and grab onto the grapple fixture on Zari, and we had it. Yeah. And then she maneuvered it around, and we put it uh, onto the top, lined it properly with the uh, PMA on the top of, uh, of the Node 1. And then we again fired the thrusters on the shuttle towards Zarya. Yeah. And that caught, caused it to slam into the mating adapter and of the capture latches to close. Wow. Boom. And now, now they're together, right? Yep. But the job's not over. The job is not done yet. <laughs> um, we learned something pretty interesting here. In fact, it was something that I had learned on STS-74 when we put the docking port onto the docking uh, adapter on the outside of Space Shuttle Atlantis when we were getting ready to dock to Mir. Hmm. Uh, when we did that, as we had held uh, the, uh, the docking uh, adapter on top of our docking port on 74 and slammed the, thr the thrusters to put things together, mm -hmm. then as we started to pull it down so that we could lock the hooks around the perimeter, of the mating interface, the robotic arm was stiff enough that it was causing it not to properly align. Uh -huh. So we finally had to figure out that we had to release the robotic arm so that it could come down and properly align. Oh. So the same thing on STS-88. As we started to pull the docking uh, adapter mechanism down so that we could secure around the perimeter with the hooks, uh, it was misaligning itself. And we tried that a couple times, and I said, I remember this. <laughs> <laughs> this happened on SCS-74. Yep. We're going to have to release it or at least loosen up the, the capture mechanism so that we can allow it to uh, properly align itself and come out at, down in seat properly. And, of course, Nancy Curry wasn't too excited about releasing it once she had grabbed onto it. She's like, but I have it. Yeah, I got it. I want to release it. But, uh, but eventually uh, the ground came to the same resolution or conclusion. Mm -hmm. And uh, after we did that, then everything came together fine. And, and we had our, the foundation of the International Space Station, the cornerstone of the International Space Station, mechanically connected together. There you go. And at this time, you were preparing for your big role, which was actually going out in a spacesuit and actually connecting everything. Yeah, right? we had a, a total of three spacewalks scheduled right. for this flight to do all those uh, external assembly activities. Yeah. Uh, we did the first two, and then we went inside the station for a while before mm -hmm. we completed the third spacewalk. There you go. So... The first two, right? So uh, at least the very first one, you had 40 connectors, I believe it was, that you actually had to... Yeah, I don't remember the exact count. It was a lot of them. <laughs> I remember that. It was it was electrically hooking up uh, right. the the node to the pressurized mating adapters and making the connections between the Russian segment, the FGB, right. and the U.S. node one. So there was a lot of activity going on out there. And I will never forget, there was one cable that I had wanted to fit check which was the one that went from the Russian segment down to the U.S. segment. <laughs> and and uh, the Russians wouldn't allow me to do a fit check of that one. Ooh. And it was the one that I didn't know that if I was going to be able to make it stretch far enough to, to oh. connect it or not. <laughs> but we got it connected. You, you and, got it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, so, so you know, going back to your first statement of actually running through this in the neutral buoyancy laboratory, right. did everything kind of go according to plan based on what you practiced? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Uh, we did, we had developed the, the, the choreographing, if you will, of how we were going to do things. And, uh, uh, Jim Newman and I just went through it basically, uh, as was called out for in a checklist and, and, uh, Rick Sturko was our, 
IV guy that checked off everything and kept mm-hmm. us informed on what the next steps were. And it basically went pretty much as planned. There you go. Yeah. So I think after that first EVA is when you actually went back inside and they actually turned on the systems and lo and behold, everything everything turned right. out pretty Things well. Things powered up. Yeah. Right. Yep. So that second one, I think I was watching some of the video of the of the spacewalk that you did. There was some antennas that didn't deploy properly on, I think it was FTB. Yeah. And you had to kind of go in and shimmy them out. Looking at them deploy, they deployed. They buzzed right out of there. Yeah, didn't they? they deployed pretty quickly. <laughs> How was that? I mean, that wasn't well, that something. Was, that was pretty cool. See, we yeah. had we were supposed to go up to the very top of Zarya on the third spacewalk right. to install a handrail and do some other things up there, and uh, they weren't. Uh, they were apprehensive to let us transfer ourselves right past where that antenna was hung up and hadn't deployed properly. Oh yeah. <clears throat> so they wanted to see if we could free those so that we could have free access up to the top of Zarya. So uh, these antennas were kind of like a ribbon antenna that was coiled very tightly around a spool. And it was kind of like, you know, a metal tape uh, tape measure. Mm -hmm. It was kind of that kind of an idea. And uh, for some reason, it hadn't released properly when it got on orbit. So we had a fairly long-handled device that I can't remember what it was for now, but it was for some contingency thing. (laughs) And uh, we got onto the end of the robotic arm, and on the on the second spacewalk, uh, Jim Newman was on the end of the robotic arm, and he took this device, and he wrapped on the side of this antenna, and eventually it sprung free, and the spool went whizzing past the tail of the orbiter, and the antenna blade came out. It must have been 10 feet long, something like that, 8, wow. 10 feet long. So it was pretty impressive. <laughs> and uh, and I, if I remember correctly, uh, Jim didn't even get to see it come out because he had wrapped on it a couple of times and he was looking around for something and, and the thing <laughs> went zooming past him. <laughs> yeah, I remember you, uh, in, in the video, you narrated it. You said, and don't blink here, right? I think Because <laughs> you're going to miss it. It did deploy pretty fast. But after that, that's two spacewalks. Right now you're going back. Yeah, let, sp- me, let me just go back. Oh, go ahead. The, go the ahead. other, probably one of the major things we did on that spacewalk was to add some early communication antennas okay. onto the two side ports of... Uh, the node one. Okay. And those then allowed us to command to the vehicle and talk to the vehicle from here in Houston. Yeah. At one time, it was all going to be relayed through uh, the, the Russian ground station there in, in Moscow. Uh-huh. Uh, so we, uh, we, we, at one time, we're not going to go into the space station at all. And then they said, well, we got some things we want you to open up the hatch and throw this stuff in and then close the hatch. <laughs> and and then they decided they were going to add these two communication antennas okay. that were going to be mounted on the outside. And so then we had to have some electronics to, to install on the inside to hook everything up and make it work. Okay. So eventually we planned to go inside of, of the Node 1. You find out that a business case yeah. to actually go in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but then uh, the Russians said, well, we don't have any need for you to go into the FGB, so we don't think you're going to do that. Okay. And then we said, well, I think we ought to go do that, you know. Yeah. And then finally when Sergei Krikalev was assigned to the crew, uh, the Russians said, okay, you know, we're going to have one of our guys there. It's okay for you guys to go up into, the, into that part. Right. And it's good we did because uh, they found out that after the FGB had launched, they had a battery charger that had failed. And so we carried up a spare battery par- a charger, and, and uh, Sergey and Nancy spent a part of one of our days we were inside the station changing that out. And also Sergey found uh, that one of the uh, air circulation ducts was blocked by some plastic that had been left in there inadvertently, I guess. Hmm. And he, he knew what things should sound like. 
and it didn't sound that way. <laughs> so he did a little investigation and found that plastic and removed it and caused the air circulation to be restored properly. Yeah, sounds like a lot of things were coming up last minute, coming up to the final flight, right? Things were changing and, and evolving, right. including finding out these problems that you had to fix. Right. So now the, the mission plan is to actually, part of it is to go in and do a lot of this work. Absolutely. You said that you were in there for two days, was it? Well, was I it, was think it so. It was one, I think it was, I think it was two days we were in there. It may have been okay. one, but I was, I was remembering two. Okay. But we, we went in there with uh, power, uh, drivers and uh, removed a whole lot of bolts that had been installed for launch but needed to be removed for on-orbit operations. Mm -hmm. um, we installed those two uh, electronics units for the antennas to function properly. We had to hook up all the cables to everything to, to do that. Uh, we went down into the Russian segment and uh, did, did some uh, placement of some things there and changed out that uh, bad battery controller and other things so mm. we we uh, stayed busy in there for the time we were there definitely now going in for the first time that was a big deal as well right? very cool yeah very cool how was that opening the hatch for the first time well it was it was really neat um it's it's like you walk in the front door of your new house for the first time you know <laughs> it was it was very empty i mean there was there was nothing in there yeah and now if you look at pictures on orbit it's cram packed with stuff you can't hardly move oh, through it. oh yeah cables yeah. and bags and laptops yeah yeah in fact at one point we took nancy curry who's very very small and we carefully placed her out in the middle of the node one <laughs> so she couldn't touch anything and left her there and she was kind of like a cat you know kind of trying to land on its four feet you know she's trying to move around and get somewhere and she couldn't she was trapped out in the middle wow was pretty cool. yeah. <laughs> now doing the, doing the runs in the mbl i'm sure you practiced actually did you have space station mock-ups in the buoyancy lab as well yes so you you kind of had an expectation of what it was going to be like right did it kind of meet your expectations or was it did it no seem I, everything or? was pretty much as expected thank okay. goodness i mean you don't like surprises yeah. and that's why right. you go to the effort of building fairly high uh, fidelity mock-ups to put into the water tank and they're full scale so that you know what you're dealing with so that you make sure that you can reach everything you need to reach and all that so it's it's a very important part of uh, the preparation for a flight. Definitely. Was there, what, being there, being in the real thing in orbit, was there anything that really stuck out and impressed you? Uh, I think the thing that uh, ultimately impressed me was after all these years of effort and thinking and redesigning and everything else, we were here and we were starting the process. Yep. And I was just thrilled to be uh, selected to be part of the team to lay the cornerstones of the International Space Station. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. It was it actually came together. He was the physical thing, right? right? So you so you opened up the hatches. This is this was a this was a cool moment that I remember, you know, entering for the first time um, figuring out who was going to be the first person on the space station, right? Cuz one of these first was first time people entering the thing. So what happened there? Well, uh, I think Bob Cabana, our commander, probably had a uh, idea, but he never really let on to the rest of the crew. <laughs> uh, and ex and what he did, I thought, was exactly what should have been done. Mm -hmm. uh, he, as the commander of the crew, uh, invited Sergey Krikalev, our international partner on that flight, to enter into the Node 1 and then into the FGB together. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a great way to, to demonstrate and to start the international uh, relationships on on the station 
Right, because there are a lot of moments leading up to this, right? First, we have Apollo Soyuz, where we're actually collaborating for the first time in space. Then we have the whole shuttle Mir thing. Now, International Space Station, we're all working together towards it. But again, you know, the job's not over, right? You're in there for two days. You have a lot of work to do on the inside, but you still have one more spacewalk. One more spacewalk to go, right? Yeah. So this was the one where you actually went on, the, I guess, the top, right? Based on where the payload bay was and where the Zarya was, you actually had to go all the way up to the top. Yeah, and it looked like a long way. Up once we got up there. <laughs> but before that was done, we had a uh, another antenna that we had to release. Oh. And I, it was my turn to be on the end of the robotic arm for this. And I'm sitting there wrapping on this thing, and, it, <laughs> and it's not coming out. So I'm wrapping harder and harder. And the ground, I think, was getting a little bit nervous as how, how much energy I was putting into this thing. And, and finally, about the time they were telling me to stop is when it came out. And I went, yay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's done. Yeah. So you had that right then. You went on to the top. You installed some Yeah, then we crawled all the way to the top, yep. and we uh, installed this handrail, which would bridge a gap uh, that would allow it to connect up directly with handrails on on uh, the next uh, part that came up the service module <laughs> and um uh, while we were up there it was nighttime for a good share of that time hmm. and so looking back down at the payload bay all you can see was the little lights in the payload bay and stuff on the or orbiter and yeah we going wow that's quite a ways down there <laughs> <laughs> never mind we're 200 miles in space right but, you know looking yeah. back down at the orbiter it looked like it's quite a ways down but the other thing was, while we were up there, we saw the Russians had uh, mounted a couple of uh, exposure trays, experiments, on the outside of the FGB. Hmm. And they had uh, just about shooken free. They were just a little bit from becoming free and floating off. Yeah. And so I found that, and I informed the ground. I asked if I could, you know, resecure them. And it took quite a while with them going back and forth with the Russian ground control station before... Uh, they finally gave me the okay to do it. Of course, I'd already done it. Sure, yeah, I'll get it. But it gave us, uh, gave Jim and me, uh, probably uh, about thirty to forty minutes, just kind of sitting up there at the top of the of the station and just hanging out, which was <laughs> which was great because we were enjoying looking at the universe and yeah, and everything else. It was pretty cool. So, how was that view? You you were able to see stars and look oh, yeah. at the Earth below and everything. Yeah, at, at yeah. night in particular, you can see lots of stars. I mean, you can oh, see wow. everything, and and of course, you're going around the world, so you can see stars that people in the southern hemisphere see that we never get to see up here. That's right. So you get to see a lot of stuff. Uh, on I don't think we did on this particular pass, but sometimes you can see a. a Aurora in the southern hemisphere or the northern hemisphere. Yeah. It's pretty awesome to do, <laughs> no doubt about it. So that so that last spacewalk, I think there was another thing that you did. Was it a, a test of the SAFER? You were talking about the man mobility unit before, but right. you actually tested tested that out. Yeah, I had been, uh, early in my career, I had worked with Bruce McCandless on the final development of the man maneuvering unit. Yeah. And then I had been the support crew member and uh, the capsule communicator for all the flights that flew the man maneuvering unit. Okay. So I was very comfortable and familiar with it. And as we got ready to fly uh, assemblies uh, of the station, mm -hmm. I uh, argued for the development of this new safer device. Okay. Which I saw as a self-rescue device, a parachute, if you will. Yeah. That if a crew member became detached and was floating away from the station or the shuttle even, uh, they could activate this system and fly themselves back to the structure and reattach themselves. Yeah. So we had tested that on a, a, a prototype version of that on an earlier flight, and it had uh, demonstrated uh, very capable uh, performance. Uh, we had designed and built the final flight hardware, and our flight was the first one to carry it. Mm -hmm. 
And I argued that there was enough changes in it that we ought to test it out to make sure that it was going to work as advertised if and when we needed it. Yeah. So towards the end of our last, uh, th the third spacewalk, uh, Jim Newman uh, had my tether he loosely held so I had some slack. And I set myself adrift out in the middle of the payload bay hmm. and activated the safer unit. And then did some quick flying around just to evaluate that it worked. Yeah. And we found a couple of, uh, of problems with it. Okay. That uh, I'm glad we therefore did test it. Yeah. And uh, we were able to fix those minor problems and now have a very trusted self-rescue device that, that the crew members wear when they go outside on spacewalks. Very important work that you're doing on this on this first few spacewalks. Yeah. The first three of Space Station Assembly and Maintenance. I think we crossed 200 not too long ago. I know. Pretty so, amazing. Yeah, there's a lot that we've learned, and, and you kind of set those milestones. That's incredible. So it's not too long after this where you're actually detaching from the space station. You let it go. You installed all the communications. Everything is up and running. Now it's time to come home, right? Right. And uh, that was kind of a bittersweet moment because, yeah. uh, you know, uh, we we had successfully did everything that we planned to do. The the station was up and functioning, mm -hmm. uh, but it was kind of like uh, you've you've got this new baby in and you're going to leave it and go home. <laughs> 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 but it was it was an awesome sight to see. Uh, we took yeah. a lot of pictures as we uh, undocked and separated, and uh, I think the whole crew is very pleased with how things are going. Yeah. For sure. I think you did a couple more things before actually coming home, deploying some satellites, I think. Yeah, we had a couple small satellites, yeah. uh, almost like getaway special kind of things, but uh, they were contained in, in uh, cans there along the f forward uh, starboard side of the uh, of the shuttle, and uh, I think Rick Sturkow was the guy that, that deployed those, if I remember correctly. There you go. Yeah, so then so then coming home, you you mission complete, right? You, you in actually installed Unity onto Zarya, and everything was went according to plan so it was a very successful mi mission did you feel accomplished did you yeah i think the whole crew was very pleased with how things went okay and i think we also had kind of a collective uh exhaling <laughs> <laughs> because you know we knew that this entire space station program yeah really was uh on our backs to get it off and, and going properly and right. and uh, s successfully so mm -hmm. uh we i think we felt collectively a, a a lot of satisfaction, but also some relief that everything had gone so well. Yeah. Now, you had, I think, one more mission, right, where right. you went to space, but you stuck around at NASA for quite some time. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So what was uh, what were you doing during that those, you know, those years? Okay, so my last flight was another space station assembly flight. It was STS-110, mm -hmm. and uh, we went up and added uh, the S-0 truss element to the station, the center section of the truss, and we did a, a total of four spacewalks on that mission. Uh, uh, two different teams went outside, uh, and uh, I went outside on the second and fourth spacewalks with Lee Boren. Okay. And Lee and I were the first pair of grandparents to do spacewalks together. <laughs> and so the rest All of the right. crew called us the silver team. <laughs> <laughs> so, Wonderful. Yeah. So, so then after that, um, they put me into a management position mm -hmm. as the head of the vehicle integration test team. Okay. Or VIT. And as such, I led a team of engineers, uh, some who worked here at the Johnson Space Center and another set that worked down at the Kennedy Space Center. And we provided a lot of direct engineering support to crews getting ready to fly into space. Hmm. And sometimes when crews couldn't go to the Cape to do fit checks on hardware or to some other manufacturing facility around the country or, in fact, around the world, uh, some of our people would go to those places and do those fit checks I talked about earlier with with the flight hardware to make sure that everything was 
proper, that everything was dimensioned properly and that everything was going to, to fit as planned. Mm-hmm. And we would also verify the the labeling was as the checklist said the labeling was going to be and a lot of other things. We looked for sharp edges that could cause problems to crew members and maybe damage their spacesuits and things like that. Yeah. So there's a lot of things like that we did. We also then, uh, I operated, I was the head of the crew quarantine facility down at, uh, at the Cape. Okay. Uh, which was the astronaut hotel during the time they were in quarantine before launches. Right. Uh, so I was down there for every practice countdown that we had, or TCDT, tra- uh, terminal countdown test. I was there uh, with them uh, during the period of time they were in quarantine prior to the launch. Uh, I would ride in the Astrovan with them out to <coughs> the uh, launch control center where I'd get off before they proceeded on out to the launch pad. Uh, I was up on the roof of the launch control center with their families during the launches. And then I met them at the hatch when they got uh, off the vehicle after landing and helped to extract them and their uh, hardware that needed to come off with them and brought them back to the crew quarters and helped them get through their uh, post-landing activities, which included a physical exam and things like that get them to their post-flight press conferences at the Cape, and then, then put them on airplanes and send them back here to Houston. All right. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the, that human factors is, is the important th- thing that you were doing there, making sure that the crew was going to be safe and that everything worked for the human element. But, yeah, you were right by their side, and you had a lot of space flight experience, yeah. so I'm sure you were sharing that. No, I, I, it, it was keeping me as close to the flying game as I could stay, which yeah. is, was a delight to me. <laughs> and also I think uh, having somebody with my background and experience I think it was a benefit to the crews coming down there because I could understand what they were going through and what they felt and uh, what what things to try to protect them from that you know from interferences from the outside or things like that. So I think it was right. all uh, beneficial to uh, to the crews. So you were you were very close to the crew, but you stayed at NASA to actually see the space station program through to the completion of assembly, right? Yeah, I was, the- I was here for every space shuttle flight from before the first one through the last one. There you go. And I was here through the inception of several different versions of space stations before we finally got to build the International Space Station. And I left after assembly complete on, on it. So wow. got to see a lot of fascinating uh, things. Yeah. I didn't get to walk on the moon, but I still got a lot of other, <laughs> other things I got to do. You get, Yeah, you got have insane milestones here. Um, but... You know, just seeing, being a part of the first assembly mission, actually, like you said, laying the kind of the groundwork for what was to be the full completed International Space Station. Now, and you got to see it through. How was that whole process? Just realizing, I I saw after your post-flight, I think they had some computer graphic imaging of what they thought the space station was going to look like. And that showed the completed product after your mission. Uh, which was the first assembly mission, just kind of floating through space, and then kind of seeing how that virtual image compares to the real thing. You know, you yeah. s- you actually saw it through. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, I guess one one of several frustrations I had. Uh, but one of the frustrations I had was I would have liked to have done at least one more mission mm. close to the end of the assembly process. Yeah, you know, having been there on the first one, having been there on the first one of the of the second phase, which was the start of the the truss assembly. Right. I would have liked to have been there up there one more time close to the the final uh, configuration so I could have gone out and crawled around on all that structure and <laughs> had a good time out there. It's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. So, um, you know, now, now seeing 
that it is completed and being, you know, what we're talking about utilization now is a, is a term we're using because ultimately what it was built for was as a research laboratory. Right. We're doing a lot of research now, seeing mm. what we're doing is, is it everything that we've, that we built it for based on what in the initial plan? You know, I, I think so. I, I am not as closely aware of what's going on now as I used to be when I was here, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, I think that we're doing a lot of uh, very important uh, research up there. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the things that a lot of people may not understand is that a lot of the work we're doing up there is uh, doing things that will enable us to go eventually to the moon and then on to Mars. Yeah. You know, we're looking at what happens to the human body over longer and longer stays on orbit. And we're looking at ways to counteract things that are of, of bad consequence to doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're looking at developing systems that are more efficient that are uh, that that last longer so that you don't have to have a lot of maintenance and or spare parts for them yeah uh, that are basically a hundred percent closed circuit so that you don't have to bring a whole lot of water and and oxygen and things like that with you when you go further and further into space um, we're looking at all those kinds of things and I and I think it's the right step and I and I think we're back now looking at going back to the moon establishing a permanent or semi-permanent presence there, understand how to use the the resources on the surface of the moon to allow us to stay there for longer periods of time, to, to build structures, to harvest the uh, ice water and to use it for our, you know, our, our drinking water, for uh, maybe growing crops, um, for maybe manufacturing rocket fuels, things like that. Mm-hmm. Those are all the things I think are key and critical to us eventually being able to go on to Mars. Yes. And certainly having uh, highly reliable systems that are going to be uh, operating for years at a time without any problems is what we need. Yeah. You know, under current technology, it's about nine months to Mars. Another nine months back after you've spent a year or so in the vicinity of Mars or on one of its moons or on its surface. And uh, so you you need highly reliable systems. You need uh, totally close uh, cycle systems so that you don't have to carry a whole lot of water, oxygen, food, things like that with you. Yeah, that's a lot of considerations. Now, you're an experienced space f- flyer yourself. You you did a lot of uh, spacewalks, but you also did new things. You, you practiced them in the pool and then executed them, and they went according to plan in space. Based on your experiences, thinking about these missions to the moon and Mars for the future explorers, what pieces of advice do you have for them? <clears throat> do what works. <laughs> and, we, and we know what works. Okay. Unfortunately, we have a, basically a whole new gen- – it's not unfortunately, but we, the fact is we do have basically a whole new generation of people here, engineers, flight controllers, even crew members. Right. And to some extent, even the management structure is basically turned over. So I, I hope that they don't try to reinvent wheels. I hope that they will look at what has worked in the past and apply those lessons learned so that uh, things will go hopefully smoothly and safely. Yeah, a lot of knowledge here. So we yeah. should definitely use it for, for things in the future to get that reliability that you're talking yeah, not, about. Yeah, not, not saying that everything we did was totally 100% right or will totally <laughs> 100% transfer to what they're going to do. Yeah. But don't lose that expertise and that knowledge. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Jerry, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, Really just an honor to talk to you today and talk about this, the beginning of the International Space Station. Now we are 20 years in the future and just to see everything that it's done and everything we're going to do because of it. It's just a fascinating time. So I appreciate you coming on. Been my pleasure. Thanks.
Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Mr. Jerry Ross. We went back in time and visited STS-88, and that'll complete our two-part series on the beginnings of the International Space Station, starting first with Zarya and Doug Drury. You can go back and listen to episode 72 uh, for that conversation. Otherwise, you can check out some of our other NASA podcasts. If you check out Rocket Ranch, they also talk to uh, uh, Bob Cabana, who was referenced many times uh, during this podcast, and they have an episode for the 20th anniversary of the International Space Station. You can also check out some of the other NASA podcasts we have. Um, Most recently, we have On a Mission from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. We have The Invisible Network uh, that talks about space communication. Also have um, NASA in Silicon Valley and Gravity Assist. You can uh, tune in to the live coverage of some of the launches and landings of astronauts and cosmonauts uh, that are continuing to live and work aboard the International Space Station, some coming up here very soon. Um, So you can check out nasa.gov slash NTV for the latest schedule on that. Otherwise, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, check out the NASA account, check out the International Space Station pages, and use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform. Submit an idea for the show. Make sure to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast. We'll find it and bring it in as an episode. This episode was recorded on September 5th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norma Moran, Kelly Humphreys, and Brandy Dean. Thanks for joining us for this two-part series on the beginning of the International Space Station. We'll see you next week.